so we'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day together. We thank you for uh, all of your good things that you give to us. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Uh, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot de- deny yourself. And we pray, Lord, as we look at the perseverance of the saints, that that doctrine would seep within us, that salvation is of you, and that you're powerful to keep us within your firm grasp. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Dear ones, I want to begin by just giving you a little review of where we had left off last time, and that'll let people kind of settle in. So last time, as we were talking about the perseverance of the saints, I mentioned two things. Number one, I think it's the most important, in my opinion, practically of all the doctrines within TULIP, because it has to do with your eternal security. So practically speaking, I think this gives a great comfort to believers when they know that they're kept by the power of God. Second, I talked about the definition of the perseverance of saints, how I like that better than eternal security. Not because we're not eternally secure. We are. That is certainly true. But oftentimes when people talk about eternal security, there's a pop evangelical term that's often used called once saved, always saved. And again, that's true, but it's often abused into being something where a person can make a profession at a Billy Graham crusade. And by the way, there are people who get saved at Billy Graham crusades. I'm not putting that down. But someone could make a profession perhaps and then live the rest of their life for the devil. And people will say, well, once saved, always saved. No, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is very precise. That true believers who have saving faith persevere in trusting in Jesus Christ. They don't apostatize. Why? Not because of their own doing not because of their own ability, but because of the power of God. So one of the first slides I showed you, I just want to do a little review, and I'll bring you to the slide that we left off on. Remember in John 17, I just want to reiterate why this is significant. In John 17, Jesus, as our great high priest, is interceding for us before the throne, even before he leaves. And in his intercessory prayer, he prays that the Heavenly Father would keep us from the evil one. And I talked about how that preservation meant not that you and I won't be tempted. We will certainly be tempted by the devil. In certain times, we will even fall into sin. So being kept from the domain of Satan means that we're forever secure. Even though we stumble, like Peter did when he denied Jesus three times, we ultimately will never falter so as to fall away from the faith. And I showed you in 1 John 5, 18 through 19, remember... It says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So let me just review this with you. The whole world lies in Satan's domain. Now, when John says that in 1 John 5, 18 through 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, he's not talking about the world as the celestial sphere, as if somehow, you know, it's the globe or something like that, but he's talking about fallen humanity, that all of fallen humanity, all those who are born in Adam, are in Satan's domain. Now, he also says, though, that Satan does not touch us in that same passage. And again, I'm talking about 1 John 5, 18 through 19. So again, that's because you and I remain in Christ's domain. And that's because Jesus is keeping us. And he's praying for the Father to keep us. I also mentioned, remember the verb tereo for keep can be rendered guard. And the preposition from ek means to be preserved 
on the outside. Okay, so it doesn't mean that you're going to be sometimes in between or one day you're in Satan's domain and then you're brought back out. No, you're always preserved on the outside of his domain in the domain of Christ. That's what Christ prayed and that's how it's answered. I also talked about 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 and I like this underlined portion if you remember in verse 5 where it says that we are protected by the power of God through faith. Important two things. Number one, what protects us, it's the power of God, but it's not apart from faith, but it's through faith. In other words, he keeps us in the faith, and that's why the term perseverance of the saints is to be preferred. So if you look at a, perhaps you have some dear friend who gave a profession 30 years ago, but for the last 20 years they've been living as a Buddhist, you can't claim that they're being kept by the power of God. Because if they're being kept by the power of God, it's through faith. Are they in the faith? Are they trusting in Jesus Christ? If they're not, they're not being kept by the power of God. So that's why perseverance of the saints is a better term. I, I really, that's, of all the tulip, by the way, we can amend a lot of tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. The perseverance of the saints is actually the best of the, the five. It's probably the best and most apropos. Okay, now we also looked at Romans 8.30. Remember it says those of me predestined, he called, those he called, he justified. Those that he justified, he also glorified. And we said all those verbs are aorist active indicatives. What does that mean? It means it's past tense. So God is speaking as if it's already been completed. If you've been predestined, you've been called. Calling, there's the effectual calling, whereby he gives you the ability to believe. But if you've been called, you've also been justified, declared righteous in his sight forevermore because Christ gives you his righteousness because he paid your debt, but you're also glorified. And it's all done. So how is it that Arminians are claiming that you can lose your salvation? It's a non sequitur coming from this passage. It does not follow. Finally, we left off in Philippians 1.6 where Paul says, he who began a good work and you will perfect it. Until one, until the day of Christ Jesus, that's at his return. So if Christ began a good work in you, if God did that in you by bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ, that's the good work that was being referred to. He is going to keep that until either you go home to be with the Lord or the Lord comes back at a second coming. All right, so that's where we left off. Now, I want to come to another passage that Paul gives us that's very significant. Eric, before you go on. Oh, I'm sorry, Christy. I wasn't going to ask this because yeah. it could be kind of um, a little bit of a bomb here, but um, when you talked about people um, coming, you know, at one point proclaiming, you know, having faith in Christ and then remaining a Buddhist or whatever, there's a lot of Christian denominations yes. also that I think a lot of us deal with in our own lives and our own families. Yeah. I will um, speak about the one that my family deals with, and that's Catholicism. Yes. And I struggle with the idea that someone would come to a saving faith, have the Holy Spirit, and be able to remain in that teaching for a length of time. Could you well speak said. to that? Absolutely. The, the Roman Catholic Church has a different Jesus. And so if you were to summarize, to me the best way of summarizing what's wrong with the Catholic Church is found in 2 Corinthians 11. And the reason I say that is the Jesus of the Bible is sufficient to save. So you don't need purgatory. You don't need the various indulgences and 
the things that they offer. You don't need penance. By the way, if you, there's a great book out there. I, oh, I wish I remember the author. But it's a book out there about, I'll, I'll bring it next week. But I love this Catholic book. It's written by an evangelical, but what he has is a flow chart which shows you the scheme of salvation of the Roman Catholic Church. It's very helpful, I think, for Protestants and evangelicals to know. But what's interesting, Christy, is oftentimes they believe that salvation begins with regeneration at baptism. So let's just take an example. You have a baby who's baptized. They believe that baptism saves. But as soon as that baby sins, salvation is off. They have to enter into the system of penance. Well, if you need a system of penance, no longer are you trusting in Christ alone. So therefore, you have a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, as Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians 11. So you're absolutely right. When we look at this passage in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, yes, God protects true believers in the true Christ. We're, we're protected by the power of God, but it's through faith. It implied is its faith in the Christ of the Bible. The Catholic Christ is a different Christ than the Christ of the Bible. Why? Because he can't save you. You have to have penance, purgatory, the meritorious works of the saints, etc., etc., etc. So you're absolutely right. It's very troubling when people we know make a profession and yet remain within false, um, either cults or false religions, we know that they're not in the faith. And so that's why it's so important that, that they would leave uh, those, in fact, they're commanded to do, as I mentioned a few weeks ago in Romans 16, that they would give no aid and comfort to the enemy, as it were, by promoting and being aligned with cults and false religions. Uh, yes, Ma- Maryland, I'm sorry, we'll get a mic to you. Thanks, Rich. By the way, it's great to see Eric back, and we're expecting a full recovery, and uh, uh, great seeing you, my friend. So uh, um, thank you, yeah. Yes. Um, no. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I can hear you, but I, not through the microphone. I was misleading there. Go for a green light. It's techie, so it's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as um, being in the domain of Satan. Yes. An infant until the age of accountability. How do you, how yeah, do you address yeah. that? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. And Bob, join in here with this. I don't believe that there is an age of accountability. And the reason I I say that, Marilyn, isn't because I haven't looked. (laughs) It's because I haven't ever seen a passage that that teaches it. And so, (laughs) excuse me, what we want to be careful is that we're not buying into some doctrine merely because it's within church history or because some denomination or tradition holds to it. So what I would say is that what we do know from the Bible is that every human being is born a dead sinner in Adam. We labored that point in Romans 5. And so what we do know is that every person is born in Satan's domain and that it's only through the gospel that people come out. Now, this raises the question, what about infants? What about babies? I have to throw this up to the Lord and say, that's not revealed to me. I don't really know how he... What, what he does in each instance. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've got a little cold I'm still dealing with. But <clears throat> certainly what we can trust is that God is good, gracious, and just, but we don't have enough data to say that there's an age of accountability or there's um, some provision for infants in particular 
That's not given to us in the scriptures. Um, Bob, why don't you uh, jump into this yeah, as well? Yeah, I'll work on your voice a little. Yeah, I'll, thank you. Actually, yeah, I've run into that question for decades as, as a pastor since the 80s. And it's a question that the Bible doesn't address. But one thing we cannot do is deny what the Bible does address. And 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, in Adam all die. Okay, so if we reject original sin and we reject that the whole human race was plunged into ruin, death, and destruction by Adam's sin, and then start playing around with ideas like age of accountability, which the Bible doesn't address, we're going somewhere the Bible's not sending us. It's secret things that belong to God, but what's revealed is that an atom all dies. So when somebody says, well, what about a baby that died? Well, the Bible doesn't address that. And I think there's a good reason for it. Whatever the case is, there's a real good reason for it. We know from history that religious people will do all kinds of things, including suicide and murder, in order to create salvation. Look at the Islamic jihadists and so on. If people were so worried about babies being in heaven, and they knew for sure they would be, there are people who would actually kill them to ensure they'd go to heaven. Because we know that just from history. And so there's a good reason why it's not revealed. That's We've got point. to put that in the hands of God. Yeah. And here's another thing why we have to maintain the doctrine of original sin. We just did a whole bunch of work, wrote an article, did nine podcasts, all of them haven't been broadcast, on this Enneagram false doctrine who claims there was an original pristine self up in, that was wrecked by life that has to be recovered to find the true self. So when you deny original sin, then you have all open Pandora's box of false doctrines. Because now they're trying to get back to that pristine self. And then one more thing I want to say. In our own practical, practical experience, how long does it take for a kid to get old enough to lie? <laughs> yeah. I know it didn't take me long. Right. And uh, it's it's, it's crazy to reject the original sin. So leave the unknown things into God's hands and go by Scripture alone. Amen. Well said. You know, Bob, I completely agree. And I hope, Marilyn, does that that help? Um, Yeah. Yeah, David. Yeah, you went to be with him. But again, that's that's not a... That's David's uh, statement about belief in the afterlife. It's not a doctrine about um, all babies go to heaven. It, it, does, it doesn't say that. That's da- David's belief in the afterlife and Sheol. Um, so uh, that, that, that one's not really a... That's about, if that's the only proof text, it's the weakest one you can imagine. Yeah, it's, I mean, not, it's not dealing with the issue. Well said, Bob. Marilyn, there's another text that sometimes people will use, and that's when John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. 
But what's difficult about that, like Bob said, is that doesn't give us a universal principle for all infants, uh, whether in the womb or out of the womb. So the difficulty is, is that we're in an area in Scripture where it's not been revealed. And so this gets back to our worldview issue with like Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children, but the things that he's not revealed belong to the Lord alone. What Bob and I have done, I think rightly so, is to say, look, that's not clearly revealed what happens to all babies. It's not been clearly revealed, so therefore I'm not going to speak on that. Um, Too many times, in fact, there was a wonderful scholar I love, and I won't even mention his name. He gets a lot of things right. Um, I was reading a book by him, and he brought up, just out of the blue, this age of accountability. And uh, it, it kind of took me back a little bit because I know that doctrine isn't explicit in Scripture. So I think where the Scriptures are not explicit or even infer things that can be logically derived from the text, I think we have to be silent rather than just creating a man-made doctrine. So I wish I could give you more uh, than that. But what we do know is that God saves, that God regenerates, that salvation is only of him, and only he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring people from this domain, bring them to faith in the gospel, and bring them securely in Christ's domain. That's what we do know. Yeah. Have you one time? Well, the emotional part of it, too, has done so much nasty harm in church history. It's unbelievable. One of the reasons for infant baptism was that let's concoct a doctrine that you can't get from Scripture so that we can feel good about our kids. So we're going to baptize them as infants and then we're going to say they're saved. Right. And that's another emotional, if you watch some of the testimony of these. uh, this last week, <laughs> when people start going by emotions, they go bad places. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I feel bad. How do you feel? Oh, I feel terrible. Okay. Uh, listen, church history is littered with wicked doctrines that are created out of human emotion rather than scripture. So let's only teach what we do know and leave the secret things into God's hands. There's no age of accountability. Nobody can tell us what age it is. Right. And once saved, always saved is another concoction that's done a lot of damage because exactly. it's used by those who believe in mental assent as salvation. That's right. Okay, so the there's others out. who want to make sure their kids are saved. So they catechize them at a certain age and then prayed them up in front of the church and say, do you believe these things? Well, what are they going to do? They're being forced socially by social pressure to say they do. And so there they gave their mental assent. Well, then the parents say, well, once saved, always saved. So here are these kids who at one time, whether it was go to an altar call, stand up for the church, raise your hand, do this, do that. Now they're saved. So the evangelicals are really playing around the same way the Catholics did. Yeah. And, and, and Lutherans, for that matter, with their baptism. Why don't we go by what God's word says Amen. and believe that salvation is of God yes. and that God is merciful and that he forgives sins, that he saves sinners, and that when he does, their lives change and they stay changed. Amen. And when well, you were bringing this up, I, I just quickly looked at the verses before this to yeah. see some things that were true about those who have been given the word by Christ. Yes. And I came up with this just from verses 6 through 12. Yeah. Here's what Jesus said. You gave them to me. They kept your word. They received the words of God from Christ. They believed. Wow. 
Jesus prayed for them in a way he doesn't for the world. Again, he reiterates, you've given them to me. So believers are given by the Father to the Son. They are yours. You protect them by your name. And then he says, I was protecting them. So if you take all of those things, given by Christ, given by God, protected by God, believed in the word, not from the world, and protected again, reiterated, that's our, our assurance. That's where we're strong and stable. Yeah. But if we're going to go with, well, I was baptized as an infant, how does that fit with all of this? Yeah. Well, it doesn't. So if we go with what we do know, God will use that. It's very powerful. It's very comforting. It's very helpful. When we go by the traditions of man. We never gain anything we lose. Amen. Um, Marilyn, I hope that helps. Um, thank you for the question. It's a good one. And one other thing, uh, when I was doing radio one day with Bob, Bob said something that kind of struck me, struck, struck with me. And that was, we we're talking about this issue one time doing a podcast. And I don't know if you remember saying this, Bob, but you see, you know, the Bible was written to adults. It wasn't written to infants. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why we don't see it addressed. As Bob had mentioned, hypothetically, if all infants were saved at infancy, you might have people who end up uh, murdering children, etc. But the Bible was revealed to those who can understand it and those who can uh, read it. And that's what we have to affirm is that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And the rest we have to give to God and say we don't know what happens with people who, for example, are mentally retarded, uh, people who are uh, born into uh, into this world but die at like my my sister. This is kind of personal to me because I had a sister. Her name was Christine, and uh, she died. I never got to meet her. She was older than I was, but she died at just a few days. And so this is something I've had to help my my own mom and dad. So I just wanted to let you know, Marilyn. This isn't something that's abstract. Or I just say uh, I don't have to deal with it. I thought about it myself, but I just have to tell you I I don't I can't tell you, in, in with a good conscience. Thus saith the Lord. It's just not revealed. So if I were to give you anything, um, it would be at my own words, not the word of the Lord. So anyway, uh, take that. For, I hope that helps answer the question. So Yes. Right. And, and, and again, I, you're right. And I wouldn't say that they're not. And I wouldn't say that they're I, We just don't have the data to say for sure. So well said. Yep. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Uh, Norm. Just one quick comment. Yes. I think we'd have to apply this principle also to all the aborted babies. And uh, people have a lot of theories about what happens with that. But I think this is right. helpful for that. Right. Well said, Norm. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. So now let me continue on here into Second uh, Timothy 2, 11 through 13. I love this. We're going to come to this in our next book as we study it. Great words from the Apostle Paul about how God saves by his power. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, that's with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, verse 13, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, very powerful. Let me just pick this passage apart a little bit. Um, how many in here have ever heard of something called a protesis apotesis? It's something kind of strange. I know Bob has, um, and Dana and so forth, but 
A protesis, apotesis, protesis is an if statement. The apotesis is the then. Okay, now the reason I say that is this is whole passage has four protesis and four apotesis. Okay, I don't know if I said that correctly because I don't know. Is the plural of protesis, protesi or protesi or protesises or I don't know. But anyway, it's multiple. So let me just talk about the language. So notice the if. If, verse 12, if, if, if. So does everyone see that? That would be the protesis. Okay, everything that follows after that, after that statement would be the then. Okay, the other thing I want to point out in this passage is notice the we. One of the questions we have to wrestle with is who is the we? Because whatever is being promised here is for the we. And I think it's fair to say that we know that the we here must be the elect. Why? Because it says if we died with him, now, who died positionally? Remember, not physically, because obviously, if you died physically, you wouldn't be reading this. Okay, so it's died positionally with Christ. Well, obviously, that would be the elect, believers. So right away, we know that we is referring to believers, the elect. They're the ones who are being referred to. Now, notice in verse 13, it says, if we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, I want you to think about this. One of the issues we have to wrestle with is when it says, if we are faithless, does that mean that we never had faith? Or does it mean that we are being unfaithful like Peter was when he stumbled? That's another interpretive issue. Okay? Now, why is that important? Because, again, it brings us back to the we. If we define the we as believers, it cannot mean that we never had faith. And it probably doesn't mean that the person referred to in verse 13, because they are a believer, they're of the elect, they don't have faith. So the idea would be more if we are unfaithful. That would be the way I would render it. The term pistis is used, but in context, it has to do with being unfaithful, not unbelieving per se. Now, we, at times, even as believers, will have moments of doubt. John the Baptist did, remember? He sent his own servants back to Jesus. Are you the one, the one who comes, literally a messianic phrase, or should we look for another? He had moments of doubt. But my point in saying this is when it says, if we are faithless or unfaithful, we have to realize that's something within the confines of believers. That's not apostasy that's being referred to where someone says, I'm done with Christ, I'm walking away, I want nothing more to do with him. That's not what's going on here. So this has to do with being unfaithful, but notice the promise in blue is that he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Now, one of the questions we have to also wrestle with interpretation is when it says he remains faithful, this is a reference to God, but is he faithful in the sense that he's faithful to judge those who oppose him, or is it that he's faithful to save despite the unfaithfulness of his people? I think clearly it's the latter because the context is dealing with the elect. Right. Yes, Levon. Thank you, Carly. 
Yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind is Bob always saying, believe the promises of God. He promises that he's going to save us if we put our faith in him no matter what. Amen. You know, unless we would. But once we're saved, we're saved. Amen. And I think of the prodigal son. Yes. How um, the father, when he came back, he <laughs> welcomed him with open arms and never, uh, never gave up on his son. Amen. That's right. Well said. Thank you, Levant. Absolutely. So, yes, I think clearly in the context here, this being faithful is not God faithful to judge, but it must, must be God being faithful to save. And I'll show you something earlier in 2 Timothy that alludes in context of the book to that fact. Yes, Paul. Uh, could not the vision casters and the people who want to make a, a Disney theology you say use this very same verse and say, well, we may be doing it wrong, but God can maybe use it anyway? <laughs> right. No, I know what you're saying. Uh, no, that, that wouldn't be a valid application of this text. In fact, just verses later, um, if, if you read just a few verses later, I wish I could have fit it all on the screen, Paul will explicitly say, that Christians are to stay away from sin. If you belong to him, you stay away from sin. I'm paraphrasing. So no, it doesn't give us an excuse to sin. In fact, Paul addresses that in Romans. Um, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. You know? So, um, and by the way, that's probably the final thing we're going to end on. um, Maybe next week if we get to it or the the next time I'm in this. The last thing I'm going to leave off on when we're talking about this section of systematic theology is something called compatibilism where yes god is sovereign but people are responsible for their decisions so no paul that wouldn't be a a valid um, inference from this text that you and i can uh, do things that are not in accordance with the scriptures because after all god is going to be faithful anyway Um, that would be akin to saying well we might as well just go on sinning so that grace may abound may it never be it's a great way of answering that yeah yep I'm sorry, Peter. Eric, can you comment on our way in on the second half of verse 12 there? Yes. Yes. So if we deny him, he also will deny us. So remember in the Gospels, Jesus says that if you confess him before men, he will confess you before the Father. So the implication is that if we deny him, he denies us. But what's interesting is this would be what I would call a hypothetical. It's not stating that this actually occurs. So what I would say is this is something the elect does not do. So it's simply stating this. It's like saying, I'm trying to think of a good example. Peter. What's that? Peter he, he did. He did. But he was part of the elect. I, I think this is something different. I think this is an ultimate he will deny us. Um, so in other words, this would be, yeah, this would be more like a Judas issue. But I'm trying to think of a, uh, another example. The idea is it's a hypothetical that doesn't occur. If we denied him, yes, he would deny us, but that's not true. That's something that the elect don't do. The elect ultimately don't deny him, ultimately. Absolutely, it would apply to them. My only point is, this is, again, the we has to do with the elect, so that's why it locks us into the elect. It's like saying um, we are not the ones who rob banks, right? Now, that means it's just not in keeping with who we are. We're not the ones who deny him. If we deny him, he denies us, but that's not who we are. So 
Okay, that's, that's how I would understand that, Peter. Okay, but in the next text where it says if we are faithless or unfaithful, that's how I would render it, there are times when Christians certainly are. Even believers do end up being unfaithful. And he remains faithful. Now, let me just show you a text, I think, in context of 2 Timothy that kind of proves we're on the right track here. Uh, if you look at 2 Timothy 1.12, please turn your Bibles there. Notice in the context of 2 Timothy, Paul has talked about God guarding those who belong to him. 2 Timothy 1.12 Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Remember he, his imprisonment. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard it. Fulaso, literally, God is guarding it, that I, what I have entrusted in, to him until that day. So God is the one who's depicted in 2 Timothy as guarding the salvation of the elect. Now, not many verses later, now he's talking about God being faithful. Let me illustrate this through the cutting of the covenant that we see in Genesis 15. Let's take Genesis 15 for a moment. Do you remember in Genesis 15, Abraham is brought out to count the stars? And remember, they didn't have a lot of light pollution back in those days. So you can imagine the stargazing in Abraham's day was, no pun intended, was stellar. It was great. And he was asked to look up into the heavens and count the stars, and so would his seed be. That would be his promise, that his seed would be like the stars in the heavens. Well, it says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But it's very interesting, after that, Abraham, you might say, had a moment of doubt. He says, well, how do I know that I'm going to receive these things? In fact, right now, Eleazar is the one who is going to get my inheritance. So the Lord had him take all these animals and cut them in half. And what's very interesting is those animals, a lot of them are used later in the temple sacrificial system. Now, let me just make a a little foreshadowing, I think maybe implied. Think about in in Abraham's day, and he's he's cutting the covenant with Yahweh, The question is, how do I know? And then you cut the animals. Fast forward to the time of Israel, the Israelite who believed, in a sense of saying, how do I know? Will you cut the animals that were in the sacrificial system as evidence one day the Messiah is going to do that? So I see kind of a foreshadowing maybe that you have there. But what's very interesting is when Abraham cuts the animals, what happens to him? Does he walk through the blood path? No, he ends up asleep. Now, why is that important? Because in the ancient Near East, when two tribes would be warring, if they were going to make a covenant, they didn't just make a covenant, they cut a covenant. Now, as Americans, you and I probably haven't cut covenants with people that we are enemies with in your life. Have you ever taken an animal, cut the animal, walk the blood path and say, hey, if I ever go against my word, may what happened to this animal happen to me? You probably haven't done that. <laughs> Right? Uh, normally, workplaces take a dim view of, of such things, right? You take the, the blood of a goat and just slay it right there in the workplace to make amends. But that's what happened in the ancient Near East. So the term that's used is karath bereath. Karath is cut, bereath is a covenant. So the, the animals are cut, and what people would do is one tribe leader would walk the blood path, 
And he would say to the other one, if I ever go against my word, may what happened to that animal happen to me in sevenfold. Then the other man would walk the blood path as a representative of his tribe. And he would say, if I ever go against the terms of the covenant, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. So that's what God is doing with Abraham. And if you read Genesis 15 carefully, Abraham's asleep. So who alone walks the blood path? Yahweh does. Who alone is the one who says, if I ever go against my word, may what happened to that filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold? Yahweh's saying that. That's why he can say Paul so confidently, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Because he has placed his promise upon you, his people, if he ever goes against it, he's under the curse. But God will never deny himself. He's a God who cannot lie. It's against his nature. And so you can be absolutely confident that even when we have times of doubt, even when we stumble like Peter did, he remains faithful. He will not deny. Yes. And I'm sorry, we had a question over here I didn't get to. um, So we'll come back to that too. Um, On that covenant, you see, the fact that God walked alone, that's an unconditional covenant. Amen. See, God did not require Abraham to walk through it. So that's unconditional and eternal, just like the new covenant in Christ. Amen. Now, we have other covenants in the Bible that are conditional. And so it's really critical to understand the difference. But this one is unconditional. God cannot deny himself. That's right. And so that's spot on. Absolutely. Well said, Eric. So this is sometimes referred to as a unilateral covenant. So it's not bilateral. It's una, meaning one. So who alone fulfills the conditions of the covenant? Yahweh does. Who alone walks the blood path? Yahweh does. And this is a point of emphasis that Paul is making in Romans 4 because he argues, look, 400 years prior to the giving of the law, you have a unilateral covenant. And so salvation is only of God and it's only by faith. Therefore, that's always the way it has been. So the Mosaic law was a parenthesis merely so that God could show us just how guilty we are, just how sinful we are. So that's how the Abrahamic covenant as a unilateral covenant connects to the new covenant, the eternal covenant that will be without end. Amen. Yeah, that's also a unilateral covenant. Christ alone walks the blood path. He alone takes the punishment. He alone is the one who's faithful. So absolutely good, good connection. So sometimes it's called a unilateral covenant. Sometimes it's called an unconditional covenant. Amen. Yep. Very good. All right. So, um, oh, I'm sorry, Scott, you had something. I just wanted to back up to the, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Would that be accurately rendered? If we ever did deny him, he would also deny us. Yeah, I, I no, I think you're, you're right. I think the hypothetical is, and by the way, there's different classes. And I didn't want to get too bogged down in the weeds, but there's th- three different types of conditional statements. Right. What's interesting is here is we have a conditional statement that doesn't necessarily mean this is the way it is. It's a hypothetical. And so that's why I'm kind of dogmatic in saying this is something that maybe perhaps doesn't occur. If we happen to deny him, he would deny us. But that's not true of the elect. 
We can talk about things in a hypothetical way that don't apply to a group, right? So, yeah, that's, um, that's how I think we should understand it. So it's a hypothetical not saying if as is the case, but if as it were possible, but that's not true. I think that's how we should understand that, yep. But again, I think those who claim that God is faithful here in judgment are just misreading the immediate context of the passage. They're also, I think, misreading the context of 2 Timothy. No, God is faithful to save, not to judge. Yes? Well, that's how we would deal with apostasy in Hebrews, at least how I do it. Yes, and that's what we're going to come to, absolutely. Okay, we're going to go to this. Yeah, okay, and I'll I want you to on. talk in that because, Bob, you taught that numerous times, verse by verse. And I'm going to show you that Bob has, I think, one of the best understandings. I got a, a slide I think you're going to get a kick out of. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it actually comes from Bob's analogy, and I'll show you when we get to it. But um, let me have you turn your Bible uh, to another passage before I leave Paul here for a moment. Uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4.30. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4.30. I just want to show you another passage where if, in fact, the Arminians were correct that you could lose your salvation, Ephesians 4.30 doesn't make any sense. Ephesians 4.30, Paul gives this command, and Bob will be coming to this soon. Paul gives the command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, so notice the term sealed. You were sealed for the day of redemption. That's what we call a divine passive. In other words, God is the one who's sealing us. Okay, now, what's interesting is the seals in the Greco-Roman world were kind of unique. Um, in other words, we probably don't use those today. Let's say a governor was going to send something in the Greco-Roman world, and he didn't want it to be tampered with, his documents. He would put a seal on it. And typically, the seal would consist of having uh, a metal part that he would stamp into something that you could, um, like a wax that you could make an imprint. And at the time he would do it, it would be hot, but then it would cool. And so because his imprint of his ring or the metal thing that he would use to stamp it had his insignia on it, if you tampered with the seal, you were violating the governor and therefore you were, you were liable for some penalties. Okay, It's kind of like if you ever opened Tylenol or what have you and there's the tamper-proof seal, you know if the seal is tampered with, you better not trust that somebody may have been putting rat poison in your Tylenol or what have you, right? In the same way, the governor knew if that seal was broken, that that had been tampered with, or whoever received the message, what have you. Well, here, the seal that's been given to us is the seal that comes not from some governor or some king, but from our God. So God has placed his seal upon you, by the Holy Spirit. That's the imagery. And so this shows ownership. It shows the idea that it cannot be tampered with. And notice there's an until. You've been sealed with God's seal until what day? Until the day of redemption. So that means you're secure with the divine seal upon you until the Lord returns at the, the second coming, at the parts, or you go to be with him whichever occurs first, but that's the idea. Now, one other thing I want to point out that I think it's interesting in this text is Paul gives the command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you know a lot of people try to claim that the Holy Spirit is like a force, like electricity? Well, this shows that that can't be true. Can you grieve electricity? No. Can you grieve 
the law of gravity? No. You can only grieve a person. And that shows you that indeed the third person, the Trinity, is a person. It's not a force, as some heretics have contended. I'm sorry, Bob, did you have something to add? You'll be coming to this soon, won't you? Uh, I already got it written. Oh, good. I'm like a couple months ahead. Good, good. But because we're sealed, there's there's an indicative and an imperative, and I'm going to be talking about that in some of these sermons. And the fact is that what's true is not making us lazy or unmotivated. Okay, Paul wants to use what's true mm. as a motivation to live accordingly. Yes. And there's no valid either or. Wow. Okay. So some people say, well, you, well, we're talking about those who deny perseverance of the saints. Right. Where you get saved and lost and saved and lost yeah. and saved and lost. Well, they're assuming that unless you think you're going to be lost, you won't be motivated to do the right thing. Mm. So they, they want to add that uh, to create motivation. But really right. what it creates is instability yeah. and lack of faith in God keeping what he's promised to keep. Now, yeah. it's both and. Yeah. The ground of our obedience is what God has already done and what he has promised. Amen. And so we are indwelt by the Spirit if we're born of God. Yes. But that being the case, what if blasphemous words are coming out of our mouth? That would grieve the Spirit. Yes. Because we're Christians, we bear His name. Yeah. The way we live and what we say either um, demonstrates who we are or mitigates denies it in, in, in effect by how we act and what we say. We're grieving the spirit. Yes. And when a Christian grieves the spirit, the result will be that we'll get convicted. Yes. So the word of God needs to be taught to the Christian. The churches need to teach the word of God purely. <laughs> yes. Because a true Christian will realize, I, I'm grieving the spirit. I can't, I can't do this. I can't be this way. Yes. But somebody like Judas will just go deny Christ. Absolutely. So, you, so the, you can legitimately ask, am I Peter or am I Judas? Wow, very good. That's a good application. Peter yes. was grieved and he came back to Christ. Judas just went and hung himself. Went his way. Yeah. Right. Very good point. Yeah, I'm sorry, Nancy. Well, I didn't want to take us back, but I just wanted to go back to Scott's comment about oh, yeah. if we deny him, he will also deny us. Yes. I find myself as the years tick on and my loved ones that have heard the gospel, they know the gospel, my prayer for them becomes more that the Lord will not turn from them, that he will still work a miracle in their lives and, and draw them to him. So I was just a little confused about what you said because he does deny, he does turn away and deny people. Correct. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yep, you're right. Absolutely. So if, if people deny him, he will deny them before the Father. But my whole claim is I, I think we have to take seriously the we. I don't think the we changes here. It could. 
they could that could be an answer to say well the we changes from the elect to perhaps just people in general but i think the we is probably consistently the elect so here i would take this as a hypothetical that doesn't occur if we deny him but we we ultimately never do but it's that threat but before that is the promise if we endure we will also reign with him so as bob was just mentioning we're commanded not to grieve the spirit we're commanded to acquiesce to scripture we're commanded that's a means of grace don't deny him and if you endure with him you're going to reign with him that's a great promise so he's using the carrot and the stick okay does that make sense but it's not inferred by that that the elect deny now saying that i am not denying that there aren't people who do deny him and then he'll deny them that's the unelect but i'm just saying that we in context i think it's very difficult because the we died with him it has the we has to be the elect that's how i would understand it this is going to be like a who's on first it's kind of getting confusing remember i watched Abbott costello the other day with my son and uh, it's you know yeah that is a classic who's up no, this is just very basic. Can you um, help me understand how you're using the word grieve? Yes, a grieve in the sense of Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. That, that grieve? That grieve. Yes. That would be um, in, in the sense that we would have it as humans to be, um, to be woeful. To, the, the Holy Spirit is sorrowful. Sour, uh, sorrowful. Wow. I don't know why that was so hard for me to say. But, um, and again, that shows the personality of the third person, the Trinity, that he can be upset, angry, hurt, sorrowful for what we do. Um, absolutely, it would be that sort of idea. And think about it. Bob had mentioned the fact that we bear his name. That's the major implication of the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. So it's not just about using the Lord's name as a cuss word. Primarily, it's about taking yourself the name as Christian, trusting in Christ, believing in him, but living in such a way where you bring disrepute upon his name. In fact, if you read the prayer that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter 9, he admits that they took the Lord's name in vain. That's really what his prayer is about. He's confessing, we lived in such a way, we took upon ourselves as Israelites the name of Yahweh, and we lived like the pagans. We brought disrepute upon your name, and we're guilty. And you know what God's answer is? to that prayer when he admits we have taken your name in vain i'm faithful here's the 70 weeks here's how i'm going to do it first 69 weeks of years 483 years the first coming of messiah messiah will do what they didn't do the last seven years as he comes again messiah does what the people can't do so what's interesting daniel confesses we took your name in vain we grieved you lord god's response i'll be faithful i'll do what you can't do for yourselves but yeah very good question god is grieved god is sorrowful and it shows that god has personality this isn't a force the holy spirit it's the third person of the trinity thank you very very good question okay i'm sorry peter just a comment uh to the call to worship last week hebrews 3 6 but christ as a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So just an implication. Yes, I love it. If we hold fast. So the implication is if, that's why, again, the, the term perseverance of the saints is better than once saved, always saved. If we hold fast implies that God keeps his elect within the faith. 
So it's not just that you made a profession and then became a Buddhist for the next 30 years or you went into the emerging church and became a Marxist or whatever. No, the implication is if you hold fast, only true believers are those who will hold fast to the doctrines of Christ. Um, One way of putting it is we're not just those who are making profession, but we also have possession. And the evidence of that is that we remain, we hold fast uh, in the faith, but it's, it's by the power of God. We're not doing it in and of, uh, in of ourselves. So very, yeah, very good. In fact, that brings me to some warning passages, and I want to address these. Um, by the way, Bob, when's the last time you did um, your Hebrews? That's in CIC, and I'm just citing that because people can get more data on these warning passages from um, your CIC Yeah, article. CICministry.org. We did a whole radio series. We read or podcast. Yes. And all of those can be listened on a computer. Yeah. Uh, Dick Cuffle and I actually went through the entire book. And in this building, when we, in the previous iteration of us being here, yes. when we owned it, we were set up over here, if you remember. And starting back on 24th and Nicollet, I spent years walking through Hebrews. Yes. And we decided that if we don't take these things seriously, that's not, we're missing the whole point. Yeah. Amen. I, I so, get questions about this. <laughs> yeah. Still, today, I get emails. I think maybe I committed apostasy and, I, and there's no hope and I'm going to hell. Right, and this is the answer. Yeah, my answer, yeah, my answer is, uh, well, what I would do if I was you is I'd repent and serve God starting right now. Right. But they want to say, well, I think I uttered the wrong words and I blasphemed the Spirit, so now I'm going to hell. And, well, I, I think they want to say that so that they can just keep sitting and say, I can't do anything different. Mm. Say, so, no, if you repent and serve God, um, he will forgive you and you won't be those that sort of a person. But uh, they just get stuck on this thing to go around and around and around and around. I think I blasphemed the Spirit. I think I'm an apostate. I said, well, so you're crying out to God and God won't forgive your sins. Is that what you're saying? Wow. You want to serve God and you want to obey God <laughs> and you want to live a, a, a godly life by his grace. And God is sitting there saying, no, I don't want you. I won't forgive your sins. Wow. Yeah. Well, I don't want to put it that way. <laughs> but see, they, I've run into that for 40 years. Well, people feel guilty because maybe they grew up in a church and they've been just serving the devil. Yeah. And they want to put it over onto God. Well, I must have blasphemed the spirit. He won't take me back. <laughs> so now I'll just keep serving the devil. And right. it's God's fault I'm going to hell. I've, I've run into that for since the 70s. So, no, I think you should repent right now and serve God. And he's a merciful God. Amen. Yeah, Jesus Christ will forgive your sins. Well, what if I committed the unpardonable sin? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, um, Bob, real quick, um, because that ties into eternal security, let me just deal with the unpardonable sin real quick. When Jesus warns about the unpardonable sin, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right. Now, why does Jesus use that? Well, what Jesus is explaining is if, you, if the Spirit is the one who brings you to Christ, but you, like the Pharisees, always ascribe what the Spirit does to the power of Satan... You can't be saved. That's what the issue was. Jesus was doing miracles, and the Spirit was showing that he was the Messiah. But what happened was the Pharisees were attributing the power of the Spirit and what the Spirit did to the power of Satan. So here's the logic. If the Spirit brings you to Christ, 
the Pharisees are attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan, that was what was unpardonable. Because if you won't ever listen to the Spirit, you can't ever come to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, why is that important? Because the unpardonable sin is, a lot of people think, well, maybe it's because I use the Lord's name in vain, or I cussed, or I, um, someone, I've heard a lot of times people will say it's because someone commits suicide. They'll, They'll come up with all sorts of things, but read the context. What Jesus is concerned with is that here the power of the Spirit is clearly demonstrating that he is the Messiah. And the Pharisees were ascribing the power of, of the Spirit to Beelzebub. And what Jesus' warning is, if you're going to remain in that condition, you will never come to me as the Messiah because the Spirit brings you to the Messiah. That was the issue. So blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is to remain in unbelief, to never come to the terms by which the Spirit shows that Jesus is the Messiah, who he really is. That's the unpardonable sin. Yes. If someone is concerned about whether they committed the unpardonable sin, that proves they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's very, that is true, Scott. It's so true. That's so true. The unregenerate don't care about that. Those who are committing it don't worry about it. But you're right. If you're concerned about it, you have a good, yes, Dana. I'm sorry. We'll get Carly over there. The way I like to put it is the unpardonable sin is the one you won't repent of. Yes, that's right. Dana, I like that because it's tied into the sinning with the high hand in the Old Testament. And uh, we'll we'll talk about that actually as we proceed. I know we only got a few minutes left, but real quickly, in in the Old Testament, God talked about atonement, and there was atonement for people who sinned, but for those who sinned with a high hand was the phrase, there was no atonement. Now, that causes some people some trouble when they read it. They say, well, wait a minute. There seems to be a sin that the Lord won't forgive. But what sinning with a high hand was is where someone says, I know what the Lord has said. I know that the Lord has said, I shall not do this. And I know that the Lord is the only way to salvation. They know everything about what he's laid down. They said, I don't want him. I'm going to go my own way. I'll be my own Lord. And they never acquiesce. Bob, you had a story of a man that you knew He knew the truth of the gospel. He knew it very well, and he told you, don't pray for me. I don't want anything to do with it. That's sinning with a high hand. Why don't you give that story? Yeah, uh, somebody that we knew on 24th and Nicola when we were going out doing evangelism ran into a former pastor who was now an atheist and gave him the article I wrote on apostasy from from Hebrews. Well, the guy emailed me, and he said, well, you have a zealous member of your congregation but and he keeps telling me this so I thought I'd email you he says tell the guy to leave me alone I'm very happy he said since I've renounced Christ this is a former charismatic pastor that I had known back in the 70s said since I've renounced Christ I've got a wonderful family I've become very wealthy I'm very healthy very happy my life's never been better I'm glad I'm in the condition I'm in. I'd rather be this way. And so tell the guy's name was Dan to just let it go. Well, that I mean, I've never heard an apostate so happy being an apostate. Right, right. <laughs> and he said, this is so much better. 
Well, there, there you go. Yeah. There's your Judas. It's like, no. Yeah. I don't want it. And so that really helped me. The people are saying, oh, I'm afraid I did it. I'm afraid I did it. I can't get. Well, I remember one time, one thing I used to do when I did a lot of counseling. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid I committed the unpardonable sin. I said, well, okay, but before we go into that discussion, let's talk about your pardonable sins. <laughs> wow. Uh, I didn't want to talk about that. No big list of pardonable ones. Yeah. I said, well, let's talk about that. Why don't you repent of those? And then we'll talk about the pardonable, unpardonable one. Well, that would blow their cover. Right. They were right. looking for an excuse to just keep sitting. Sure. Because they didn't figure God, well, God won't take me back. So I might yeah, as well, might as well keep going my way. So I would just deal with pardonable sins. Well, then that they, is very they ended the counseling session and went somewhere else. Very good. Uh, <laughs> very good. We're, we're out of time, but next time we come, in fact, if you don't mind, read Hebrews 6 ahead of time. It'll give you some more context. But let me leave you with this. As we end... Think about the Ephesians 4.30 passage. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. What we can say about believers is that when we grieve the Spirit, we're grieved too. But the unbeliever, when they grieve the Spirit, they're not grieved. It doesn't bother them one bit. Do you think it bothers a Buddhist that they're disobeying the word that comes from the Spirit? What about those who are Marxist? Does it bother them that they're not acquiescing to the scriptures that are given to us by the Spirit? No, they're not grieved when they grieve the Spirit. The true believer is. So, brothers and sisters, if you're grieved because of sin in your life, that's a good sign. Don't remain in the sin. Repent. And that's why I remember in 1 John it says that if we say, believers, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness true believers in jesus christ live a life of repentance not just once and for all but we also continuously are those who say i dropped the ball today i sinned against you again lord we're like david who said i'm the man that's who we have to be people who are grieved when we grieve god let's pray heavenly father we thank you lord for your word we thank you that we do have this great promise of everlasting life that because you're faithful to your promises and your unilateral covenant that we can never be lost we do pray lord that out of gratitude we would live lives of obedience not to earn but out of gratitude for what you've earned for us we pray that you would do that for us in our lives i also pray for bob as we come to hear ephesians i pray that you'd bless him and open our ears to hear the truth of scripture from this sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.